I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. On today's episode, we explore Kaiser versus Wilkie, a case argued before the Supreme Court at the end of March. The case involves a challenge to the administrative deference doctrine known as our deference. And that may sound wonky, uh, and dear We the People listeners, our is A-U-E-R, but what's at stake could be nothing less than the future of the post-New Deal administrative state. In other words, the ability of administrative agencies like the Environmental Protection Agency or the Veterans Affairs Agency to get deference from judges when it interprets its own regulations. And joining us to explore this very wonky but very, very important case are two of America's leading administrative law scholars. Jonathan Adler is the inaugural Johann Verhey Memorial Professor of Law and Director of the Center for Business Law and Regulation at the Case Western Reserve University School of Law. He is the author or editor of many books, including Business and the Roberts Court, and is a senior fellow at the Center for the Study of the Administrative State at the George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. He filed an amicus brief on behalf of the petitioner, James Kaiser, in the Kaiser case. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining. Good to be here. And Ron Levin is William R. Orthwine, Distinguished Professor of Law at Washington University in St. Louis School of Law, where he specializes in administrative law and has published widely in that field. He is a senior fellow in the Administrative Conference of the United States and the co-author of several case books on administrative law, including Administrative Law and Process in a Nutshell. Ron filed an amicus brief in Kaiser on behalf of the respondent, Robert Wilkie, the Secretary of Veterans Affairs. Ron, it's great to have you with us. Thanks very much for inviting me. Ron, let's begin with you. Could you tell us uh, briefly what the facts of the Kaiser case are and uh, tell us about our deference and what's at stake there? Uh, Kaiser was a veteran who suffered an injury during the Vietnam War, um, and he filed for disability benefits uh, in 1982, and he was turned down. He said that he had been injured, he had suffering from uh, uh, PTSD, but uh, that uh, the, the BVA, the, the Veterans Administration, didn't uh, believe his evidence was sufficient on that. He later came back in 2006 and uh, reapplied, and this time uh, he was upheld. But uh, So his benefits would, would begin uh, as of that time, but there was a question of whether he would get back benefits for the, for the earlier period. And that depended on a regulation of the, of the Veterans Administration. The Veterans Administration says you can get retroactive benefits if you uh, supply relevant service records that were not considered the first time. And he says, well, I did that because I hear, here are some records that show that I was part of the battle that I, that I claim uh, gave me PTSD. The government says, well, uh, the, the problem with that is it was assumed all along that you had been in that battle, the records don't add anything new. So that's not what relevant records within the meaning of the regulation are about. That's a dispute. Uh, the uh, Board of Veterans' Appeals rejected Mr. Auer's uh, claim. Uh, it then went to the Court of uh, Veterans' uh, Claims, which also rejected it. And then it went to the Federal Circuit, U.S. Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals says, well, we aren't sure how to interpret this, but we will defer to the agency on the basis of what is known as our deference, uh, uh, which is also known as seminal rock deference because you have two cases that have articulated the same test. The same test they st state is that a reviewing court should, should give an a administrative agency's interpretation of its own regulation controlling weight unless it is plainly erroneous or inconsistent with the regulation. And here the Federal Circuit was the thought, well, uh, neither of those conditions is satisfied, so we will follow the regulation. The, quest the Supreme Court has now granted cert to decide whether to overrule our deference. And as Jeff mentioned, I filed a brief along with some other professors arguing that it should be retained. I'll just state briefly why our deference uh, seems to us a good idea. Sometimes the agency will have actually written the regulation recently so they know firsthand uh, what it means or how it was intended to operate. 
Secondly, whether or not that's true, the agency will be familiar with the way the program is supposed to work um, because it works with the program day-to-day uh, -day and the uh, reviewing court does not have the same familiarity. Um, third, some of the regulations are quite esoteric and technically complex um, uh, and courts don't have that knowledge. And finally, there's a, a democratic element, small d, because the agency is politically accountable for the choices it makes. Judges are not elected, so if the regulation's ambiguous, it may be better for the court to defer to the executive branch. Uh, the only other thing I should say at this point is that the doctrine doesn't mean agencies get a blank check because uh, the, it is the, the doctrine is intended to give the courts a significant role. That's what the plainly erroneous or inconsistent with the regulations part of the test is about. So the court won't defer if the agency's interpretation uh, is unreasonable or if courts think that the regulation isn't ambiguous at all um, or if the agency arrived at its interpretation only after it got sued or various other factors. It's intended as a balance between uh, the agency's qualifications and judicial responsibility. Uh, our brief says the court should maintain that balance and not overrule uh, that doctrine. Uh, Jonathan, you have written uh, extensively on our and have a great piece in the SCOTUS blog symposium on the Kaiser case. Government agencies shouldn't get to put a thumb on the scales. Uh, that begins, all James Kaiser may want is for the Department of Veterans Affairs to alter the effective date of his veterans' disability benefits, but his legal challenge to the VA's denial of the claims has given the Supreme Court an opportunity to revisit one of the more problematic doctrines in administrative law, our deference. Tell us why you think our deference is problematic and why you think the court should revisit it. Sure, uh, happy to. Um, in a nutshell, uh, I think that our deference is problematic because it allows federal agencies to evade a series of important administrative law norms that we have for decades recognized as being particularly important in ensuring that federal regulatory agencies, when they perform their various functions and fulfill their responsibilities, are nonetheless acting in a transparent and accountable way. Uh, and then in particular, uh, our deference enables agencies uh, to evade the accountability we typically demand of agencies when they are promulgating regulations and declaring uh, what legal rules individuals must comply with, or in the case of someone like James Kaiser, what legal rules will determine whether or not he is eligible uh, for his benefits. Uh, it allows agencies to evade obligations for giving notice to people. So in James Kaiser's case, the VA announced its interpretation in the process of denying his claim. Um, and he didn't have notice uh, of, of their particular interpretation. And we see many examples of agencies announcing interpretations of their own regulations that receive this controlling deference from the courts uh, without having given prior notice of that. In Our versus Robbins itself, for example, the interpretation offered was provided in an amicus brief that the courts had asked the agency to file. Uh, so no one was on notice of what the agency's particular interpretation would be uh, prior to that, be, that brief. It allows agencies also to evade responsibility for the errors or ambiguities or problems of their own regulations. Generally, when an agency issues a regulation, if that regulation needs to be fixed, if it needs to be updated, if it needs to account for changes in technology or scientific understandings, we expect that agency to go through the sort of process that that agency went through when issuing the regulation in the first place. Our enables agencies uh, to evade that. And then it also, uh, in some cases, allows agencies uh, to evade taking the sorts of actions which trigger judicial review. Uh, and so that agencies can, under our, issue interpretations in various forms and in various documents, memoranda, letters, and the like, which are often hard to convince courts to subject to judicial review. And so I think this combination of factors suggest why our deference is problematic, helps explain why Justice Scalia, who authored the opinion in Auer versus Robbins, uh, before his death uh, said that he thought that Auer was one of the Supreme Court's worst decisions 
uh, and had completely changed his mind on it. And I think that's particularly significant because whatever else we know about Justice Scalia, I think we all know that he's not someone that changed his mind lightly. Uh, and the fact that after writing Our versus Robbins, he subsequently realized it was so problematic uh, is something that should give us all pause. Thank you for uh, teaching us that Justice Scalia changed his mind about our. Uh, Ron, let's talk about the oral argument because that'll give us a sense of the reaction of the justices, both the uh, liberal and conservative justices, toward the argument that our should be overturned. Uh, the court's more liberal justices seemed largely unpersuaded by the arguments for overturning our justices. Ginsburg and Sotomayor asked why they why they needed to decide our deference at all. Uh, either the regulation at the center of the dispute was clear or the VA's reading was by far the better reading. Justice Breyer seemed to believe that federal agencies rather than federal judges have expertise in their subject matter and they're better suited to interpret highly technical regulations. And Justice Kagan pressed about whether it was appropriate for the justices to overrule past cases. I'm taking that summary from Amy Howe's summary of the argument in SCOTUS blog. Could you tell us more about the reaction of the liberal justices to the arguments to overturn our and what you thought of those arguments? Well, of course, I agree with those arguments, generally speaking. Uh, the liberals, yes, um, did make a number of arguments uh, in favor of our deference. Uh, one uh, point that Justice uh, Breyer made was that the expertise of the agency may be important in deciding the case. He referred to a, uh, a uh, regulation mentioned in the, um, the Solicitor General's brief um, in, in which a court had deferred to the FDA's interpretation of a rule that concerned a single new active moiety joined by a non-ester covalent bond in a lysine group. And Justice Breyer said, you know how much I know about that? <laughs> uh, nothing. Um, he, he emphasizes that the expertise of the agency is necessary. Uh, the liberals did emphasize uh, the idea that this doctrine has been around for uh, many years. It traces back uh, actually to the 19th century, uh, but it's, it, was, it was largely uh, endorsed in a 1945 case. It's been followed for generations. And the argument that Justice Kagan pressed was, uh, you do not want to uh, lightly throw out a doctrine that has been around for so long with some unless there's a compelling reason uh, to get rid of it. And she did not see such a reason. Uh, Jonathan, before we turn to the arguments of the conservative justices, perhaps you could respond to those of the liberal justices, as well as the fact that deferring to administrative agencies uh, has not historically been a partisan issue. As, as you told us, Justice Scalia wrote the decision in our, it was then Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the D.C. Circuit who wrote the original decision in the Chevron case calling for deference to agency regulations made after notice and comment rulemaking. So what do you make of the liberal justices' uh, defense of uh, our and what is your response to it? Well, well, certainly I disagree with it. But I think before explaining why I disagree, I do think we want to at least note that when we're talking about deference to administrative agencies, we want to distinguish the type of deference we're giving and the sort of question we are giving deference on. Uh, I think there is a tendency, and I think we saw it a little bit at the oral argument, and I think we see it in some of the broader debates about uh, the administrative state that we see on Twitter or blogs and, and websites and the like, to conflate the different sorts of deference and to confuse the sorts of deference that are advisable and perhaps even inevitable uh, with those like our deference that I think are both avoidable and unwise. So to, to start with, say, Justice Breyer's concern, Justice Breyer notes quite well or quite reasonably that agencies know a lot more about the specific technical subject matter uh, that they are regulating about. And we would be, be very confused by a legal doctrine that required courts to ignore the fact that the FDA is going to know a lot more about a particular drug or the effect of a particular molecule on the body or what have you than a generalist judge uh, who may have no scientific or medical background whatsoever. And we're not talking about, no one I, I think in this case is talking about saying judges shouldn't be aware of the expertise that agencies bring to bear. Um, 
The question is whether or not agencies get controlling deference, get to tell the courts which of multiple possible interpretations that a text may have must bind, even if the agency has not engaged in any of the sorts of processes or other actions we usually expect for an agency to be able to act with the force of law. So my response to Justice Breyer is, of course, we should want courts to recognize the expertise that agencies have. That's part of the reason that we have agencies, because we believe that creating entities in which lots of people with specialized knowledge about specialized subject matter helps us develop better policy. And our deference does not in any way threaten that. Uh, what it says is that when the agency using that expertise writes a regulation, if that regulation is unclear or ambiguous, rather than expecting the agency to fix the regulation, or rather than the agency being expected to make the best case possible to a court relying on expertise, instead the agency gets to pull out a trump card. And it can be a trump card that's been sitting in that agency's back pocket for however long it needed to be. And that is the sort of thing that, that we're concerned about, that particular phenomenon. On, on the stare decisis point, because I think that it was not only a point that Justice Kagan raised, it's also a concern that the Chief Justice raised, and I think Justice Kavanaugh expressed a little bit of concern for. Uh, it's a reasonable uh, uh, concern. And if here we had a case in which the court had given a particular interpretation of a statute, the court had held, for example, that the Administrative Procedure Act requires our deference, then I think the stare decisis concerns would be very large. But that's not what happened. Our versus Robbins did not provide any such justification for this. And Seminole Rock, the case from the uh, 1930s, did not provide that sort of justification either. Um, uh, this is not uh, uh, an opinion based upon an interpretation of a statute. It's rather uh, something of the court's invention. I also think there's a very strong case to be made that our versus Robbins, as it is deployed today, is actually quite different than what the court explained and what the court did in Seminole Rock. Uh, as some historical research by Amy Wildermuth and Sonic Knudsen points out, uh, Seminole Rock, in context, read in its entirety, looks a lot more like cases like Skidmore, which we might get into in terms of what the court was actually doing. It was looking to the agency more as a possible tiebreaker after the court had already convinced itself that the right interpretation was, in fact, that of the agencies. And one sign of the fact that it wasn't the, the, this, this very powerful doctrine of the sort that was announced in Hour versus Robbins is it doesn't get cited for that proposition for decades after it was issued. Hour um, versus Robbins, the modern Hour doctrine, is, is quite different than what the court said about Star, uh, uh, Seminole Rock. And so I don't think that we have the sort of stare decisis concerns that we might have if we really had an 80 or 90 year old principle. Ron, uh, Jonathan has introduced a debate between Justice Gorsuch and Justice Breyer. Uh, Justice uh, Breyer basically said judges can't be experts in everything and are not as politically accountable as agency officials. And Justice Gorsuch said he was inclined to trust judges over bureaucrats and that people should have an independent judge decide what the law is in your case consistent with the statute. Uh, he was worried about agency capture and the idea that uh, agencies might be favoring their own interests in saving money rather than the interests of veterans who may not be the most popular or able to capture an agency. And then Justice Gorsuch said that uh, judicial deference just has too many factors. As, he, as I understand it, he told Noel Francisco, the government's lawyer, there are six elements of your test. We have to decide whether the regulation is ambiguous, whether the interpretation is reasonable, whether it's consistent, whether it was made by someone at a high level, whether it was fair notice, and whether it was made by someone with expertise. Is that a recipe for stability and predictability in the law, Justice Gorsuch asked, or a recipe for the opposite? So tell us about Justice Gorsuch's concerns. He is one of the leading critics of our and uh, what you think of them. Uh, sure, I'll be happy to do that. So part of what Justice Gorsuch is saying is I want a, an independent judge uh, who uh, can just decide these things uh, without regard to deference. And, and Gorsuch has shown through his uh, past opinions on the Court of Appeals and also in this 
um, uh, in, his, in his limited time on the court, that he has very little deference, uh, very little regard for deference uh, of any kind. Uh, but I, I do disagree with him because I think that the factors that I mentioned earlier uh, that uh, give agencies some comparative advantage in interpretation are important ones. And so uh, Justice Gorsuch will say, uh, I want to be able to adopt the best reading of the statute, of the regulation, without regard to what the agency is saying. But, but my view, and I think the traditional view, the longstanding view in the courts is that looking to the agency's interpretation is a good way of finding the best reading of the statute because of the advantages that agencies have. So I think that is just a difference in, in opinion about the value of the agency's view. With regard to complexity, um, yes, uh, there are many complexities to the our uh, doctrine. Uh, Jonathan uh, also mentioned uh, that uh, the, the, the doctrine has evolved over time, but to me, that is a feature and not a bug. Uh, it is appropriate for the courts to calibrate uh, our deference according to circumstances and to carve out limited circumstances in which they will not apply deference, and that's what they do. So agencies don't uh, always win these cases by any means. Uh, if you show that the agency's interpretation is unreasonable, or that, that it doesn't really seem all that ambiguous to begin with, uh, you win that case. So I think what you've got here is a nuanced doctrine that you don't want to readily throw out. Jonathan, what do you think of Justice Gorsuch's uh, concerns about our, which are rooted in his uh, concerns about the separation of powers and keeping the executive, uh, the judicial, and the legislative branches within their uh, proper spheres and tell us also uh, about Justice Kavanaugh's uh, concerns about uh, our and his response in the oral argument and, and then maybe characterize how you think the case against our was faring at the oral argument more generally. Sure. So um, you know, Justice Gorsuch raises a concern that we've heard going back to the nation's founding about the important way that the separation of powers protects liberty. And one of the ways it does that is by ensuring that those who write the laws and those who enforce the laws and those who interpret the laws are not one and the same. And Montesquieu is famed for noting uh, that uh, of the threat posed to liberty when uh, the lawmaker then gets to tell us what the law means. And if we look in a lot of other administrative law contexts, such as the Chevron Doctrine, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk a little bit about, uh, if Congress writes an ambiguous statute, Congress then doesn't get to write a brief to the court and say, oh, by the way, this is what we meant. You must defer to us. Rather, we understand that when Congress delegates power to the executive branch, to an administrative agency, if Congress has left gaps in that, in that statute, the agency is going to resolve those gaps. The agency is going to use the power that Congress gave to it to resolve those ambiguities. And in that context, deference is less threatening because Congress decides how much room the agency is going to have to play with, how much ambiguity is going to leave that agency. And so by separating that granting of power and delegating of authority from the power to resolve the ambiguity and, and get deference, we uh, stay true to traditional separation of powers principles. The problem in our is that the document that is being interpreted, it's not written by Congress. It's written by the agency. So the Ve Department of Veterans Affairs wrote the regulations saying that relevant evidence uh, uh, can be included in, in considering uh, uh, disability benefits. And then the Department of Veteran Affairs doesn't take the time or effort to rewrite uh, that or better define that term in its regulations once it realizes that there is some dispute about it. Rather, it waits until it can deny someone's claims and then announces this, and that interpretation is then treated by the courts as a controlling trump card. And that's something we don't allow in other sorts of administrative law contexts. Uh, that's what we, we don't allow the drafter of the text to then play that, uh, that have that trump card role in terms of announcing the interpretation. Uh, in the oral argument, Justice Kavanaugh pointed out that, as did the petitioner, that one way that agencies can solve a lot of these problems is by going through 
the notice and comment process that agencies go through when they want to act with the force of law through regulations. And that if the VA wants to have the definitive interpretation of what relevant means, or if the Department of Education wants the definitive interpretation of what the phrase on the basis of sex means, and whether that applies to gender identity, or whether that applies to sexual orientation, well, they can do so, provided they update their regulations and and clarify precisely what they mean. Uh, And I think he's absolutely right about that. And one of the things that that would do is it would mean that those who have to comply with the rules, those whose livelihoods are dependent upon the rules, Mr. Kaiser, who wants to know, is he eligible for some 20 years of retroactive benefits? Or the school district in the uh, Gloucester County case, which is, uh, was a dispute over what obligations a school had to accommodate uh, uh, transgender students, uh, the school that could have to spend significant resources on its uh, updating its, its infrastructure or might be subject to, to suit or litigation if it doesn't adopt certain policies, encouraging agencies to go through the notice and comment process would mean that those who live under the agency's rules would have greater notice and understanding of what, um, of what is required of them. And I would note, under our deference, as it was handed down in Hour versus Robbins, and as it has been interpreted and applied since, the agencies are not required to give any such notice. And so if we want to say now, well, it would be a, a good thing for the agency to provide notice, if not through notice and comment rulemaking, then perhaps in some other form, some other sort of public document. Uh, in Seminole Rock, the agency actually issued a public document at the same time they, they issued their regulation. Uh, if we want to in- include that sort of requirement, that isn't sticking with our deference. That's modifying it and narrowing it. Uh, and and I think that would be a welcome step, although not entirely far enough. So just to recap the important arguments we've heard so far, Jonathan, you just distinguished between our deference, where courts defer to agencies' interpretations of their own regulations, and Chevron deferences, where courts defer to agencies' interpretation of their governing statutes. And you say that if our were overturned, then agencies would have to go through the notice and comment Uh, rulemaking proceedings before they could promulgate new regulations, and you say that would be a good thing. So, Ron, how big a deal would it be if the court were to overrule our and require that agencies went through notice and comment rulemaking before promulgating regulations? And do you think that if our were overturned, that Chevron might be next on the block? I think Chevron's a separate point, but I'd like to respond to the separation of powers uh, critique that Jonathan gave you. Um, uh, uh, we have had, for decades, agencies that write regulations and also adjudicate cases in which they interpret their regulations. The uh, Federal Communications Commission issues rules in the communications area. They also hear licensing disputes. The Securities Exchange Commission uh, writes rules on securities. They also uh, bring enforcement proceedings against violators. This has been true for decades, and it has not been thought to be a, an infringement of the separation of powers uh, to the extent that the critique of our uh, calls that into question. It really is a, a quite radical challenge to uh, how administrative agencies work. But the argument that uh, Justice Scalia uh, and uh, uh, others have used is that this, uh, this process of, of interpreting your own regulations uh, gives people an incentive, uh, agency uh, rule writers, an incentive to write it broadly. Um, and uh, that uh, uh, incentive uh, does not really exist in the real world. Uh, according to all evidence, no one has come up with examples of regulations that actually would do that. Uh, uh, Jonathan says that uh, they should have written a regulation in the Kaiser case, but the issue that came up in Kaiser was one that nobody had anticipated before it came up in the context, before it came up in, in deciding his benefits case. Uh, so it really wouldn't be practical at that point to say, all right, we're going to call it off. We're going to start a rulemaking proceeding. Issues come up in rulemaking, in adjudication all the time that nobody foresaw. And the court has said uh, since 1947 that agencies have to be able to make decisions in adjudication and, and not put everything through the rulemaking process. So uh, it wouldn't be practical to have given public notice of their position. 
uh, uh, when the case issue hadn't even come up until Kaiser raised it in his individual case. Um, uh, so there are arguments for deference here that I mentioned before, the agency's expertise and knowledge of the area, and saying, well, they should have used rulemaking uh, is completely impractical. Well, d Jonathan, respond to the argument that overturning our would be impractical because notice and comment is impossible for unforeseen circumstances, and then tell us what the court might adopt as an alternative if it does overturn our one alternative that came up in the oral argument was based in a case called Skidmore, and there seems to be some disagreement about what Skidmore deference means, but uh, in the oral argument, uh, a bunch of folks said that it was a spectrum rather than a binary choice. So, so tell us about that. Sure. So first, I think on uh, the point that, that Ron makes about adjudications, I think is a good one in, in the following sense. Often when agencies adjudicate, they are able to act with the force of law. And since we've enacted the Administrative Procedure Act, our general understanding is, is that when an agency takes actions that, can, that are binding, and they must go through a particular process. And what we've understood in a variety of contexts, certainly in, in the Chevron context, is that going through that process, using the power that Congress delegated to the agency in accordance with the rules that Congress set forth, is what entitles the agency to receive binding deference for its interpretations. The problem with our deference, as it is, was explained in our versus Robbins, as is, it is applied in the courts, is that agencies need not go through any process at all. They need not go through rulemaking. They need not go through adjudication. They need not provide notice. They need not show that their interpretation was contemporaneous with issuing the regulation, which is, we might expect to be uh, uh, quite informative. Uh, as Justice Breyer noted at oral argument, the agency that writes the rule might have had a really good idea of what they meant. But Hour versus Robbins does not require that to be the basis for deference. The agency can come up with its interpretation decades later, and it will still receive our deference. So I think the real departure from our traditional administrative law norms is our deference as it is actually applied in the courts. It's been narrowed in a couple very uh, small ways. One, uh, if an agency merely restates the language of the statute, it's not supposed to receive our deference, although we know that lower courts uh, are, shall we say, inconsistent in enforcing that rule. In the Gloucester County School Board case, for example, the Fourth Circuit completely ignored it. Uh, and if we have reasons to think that the agency is being opportunistic, the courts have said, that they shouldn't get our deference. Uh, but otherwise, it's pretty much open season. Any interpretation of the regulation in any form is eligible for this binding deference. And that, again, I think is, is a, a real departure from the administrative law norms that we generally expect. Now, as for what would replace our deference, my own view, and, and certainly the brief that I participated in and in my own writing, I've argued that what should replace our deference is not the NOVO review, the courts should not be looking at regulations in a vacuum and just deciding what they mean. But rather, courts should uh, give what we re generally refer to as Skidmore deference or Skidmore weight uh, to the agency. That is, courts should listen to agencies to the extent that the agency can offer a persuasive explanation about what, in, in fact, the regulation means. And that means the court should pay attention to whether or not the regulation concerns highly technical, complicated material, scientific matters, and the like about which the agency has expertise. The court should pay attention to whether the agency's interpretation has been consistent over time. So if it's a case like Seminole Rock, where the agency is simply saying to the court, look, this is what we said when we issued the regulation. This is what we told the public when we issued the regulation. We're just asking you to follow along with that. That's worth a lot more weight than an agency coming uh, coming along 20 or 30 years later and pointing to an amicus brief or, or pointing to a letter, as we've seen in some cases, or pointing to some other document that was neither contemporaneous nor public. Um, so a, a, an, an analysis that looks at that, that recognizes that courts have to listen to the agency and have to consider the weight of the arguments the agency makes, I think is consistent with our traditional uh, administrative law norms, and one that respects concerns about notice, about reliance, about accountability and responsibility 
in the regulatory process uh, and would be a way to deal with the fact that sometimes agencies are going to write regulations and sometimes those regulations will not be perfectly clear. So, Ron, uh, John has given us a very concrete example of a case where he think our deference uh, was wrongly applied. And I want to ask you concretely, how big a difference would it make if the court were to overturn our taking the Department of Education example that John ended with? Uh, he notes that in under the Obama administration, the department issued a regulation concluding that Title IX imposes obligations on educational institutions with regard to transgender students. He said that that should not get uh, our deference. Um, and as it happens, the Trump uh, Department of Education reversed the holding. Um, if the court were to overturn our, would important decisions like the Department of Education's uh, transgender ruling not get deference? And how big a deal would that be? And would that be good or bad for American uh, democracy and the Constitution? Well, I think the problem here is that we're talking about our as, as a broad doctrine that is being proposed to, to throw out entirely. Um, and I think what I expect the court may do in this case is to specify uh, limitations or narrowing uh, of the doctrine or clarifying it, which could in practice uh, be narrowing it a bit, um, and uh, uh, try to calibrate uh, the level of deference and circumstances in which it's used a little more fully. In the particular case, uh, you know, that case might have been overturned anyway. The Supreme Court did grant cert in that case, uh, and then it was settled so there was no resolution. Uh, so that particular application might not have survived anyway uh, once you get to the Supreme Court level. But at the same time, uh, if you look at, at empirical studies overall, agencies don't win all these cases. Uh, they, they have a fairly significant loss rate comparable to other types of administrative uh, appeals. Uh, it seems to me that if you throw out our deference entirely, you are um, uh, ousting the courts from deference in a a broad range of areas where it does make sense. Um, the proposal to substitute has been based on uh, the so-called Skidmore test, but there's a great deal of mystery about uh, just how Skidmore shall operate. Jonathan has a very credible explanation of how it operates, but there are other courts that apply it very differently. Uh, if I could get back to the oral argument, a concern that Chief Justice Roberts has is that if we were to if we were to replace our with Skidmore, we'd have to define better what Skidmore is, and he wasn't sure he could do that. Um, so you'd have to uh, try to clarify something that has long remained unclear. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts disagreed with another point that Jonathan made, uh, in effect, because when counsel for petitioner said, uh, well, the problem here is binding deference, he says, well, it isn't really binding because there are all these ways in which a court might overturn it substitute Jonathan's word controlling, and the same is true. It isn't really controlling because there is significant judicial review in practice. Um, and so given those two points, I tend to think that this case probably won't, be, that our probably won't be overturned. Rather, it will be limited in certain ways, uh, but the courts will say in some circumstances it makes a lot of sense to retain it, uh, and so they would not be uh, eager to uh, say we are we are getting rid of it in favor of something that is, is hard to define anyway. All right. One, I, I raised earlier the question about the future of Chevron, and I want this last round really to be about the future of Chevron and the and, and the and the constitutionality of the administrative state. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh has questioned Chevron and argued that some courts have taken the doctrine too far when agency actions implicate uh, really controversial economic or political questions. It's not necessarily right, Justice Kavanaugh says, to assume that Congress delegated to the agencies uh, this broad power to interpret the governing statute. And on that basis, Judge Kavanaugh, when he was on the D.C. Circuit, questioned the Federal Communication Commission's attempt to impose net neutrality uh, through the open Internet order. So, John, uh, please tell us whether you think Chevron should be overturned, uh, whether you think uh, this court might be sympathetic to those arguments, and what the consequences would be if Chevron were overturned. Sure. So um, uh, one quick point first. Um, under Skidmore, it appears, I mean, under 
hour deference, it appears agencies win slightly over 70% of the time. Under Skidmore, they win about 60% of the time. So it would not mean the end of the administrative state. As for Chevron, um, I'm, um, I guess what you'd say, someone who believes that Chevron should be disciplined, um, but not overturned. I think that the underlying premise of Chevron, that when Congress delegates power to agencies, uh, that it necessarily delegates to agencies the ability uh, to make interpretive judgments about how that power is exercised, and that the uh, degree of clarity or specificity in the statute does affect the contours of that delegation. Uh, and if that's true, then I think it follows that agencies can and should get some amount of deference in interpreting the language that they are implementing and enforcing. So I don't think Chevron has the same uh, problems that that our does. I think they are are separate separate questions, and there are several briefs that were filed, uh, ours and some others, as, that pointed out that one can dislike our deference, uh, and not necessarily dislike Chevron because they have different foundations. I think one of the reasons why the why some justices are as concerned about Chevron as they are, is because. In the hands of some lower courts, Chevron appears to be applied in a very loose way, uh, not particularly consistent with some of its premises and some of the limitations that the court has voiced over time, and that it therefore uh, doesn't discipline agencies the way it could. Uh, Justice Kennedy, in one of his last opinions on the court, in a concurrence in a, in a case called Perriera versus Sessions, express this concern that the that that Chevron needs to be revisited because too many courts apply it too superficially. Uh, and I agree with that view, but I think again the ultimate view is that when Congress delegates power to agencies, it necessarily delegates some ability to in interpret and apply the statutes and you can't really have one or the other. And I think a lot of the concerns about Chevron are really concerns about the scope of delegation and whether or not we should revive the non-delegation doctrine. Uh, they're not really properly framed as complaints about the interpretive authority or the exercise of discretion by agencies. And I think that debate over the non-delegation doctrine is, is worth having, although Ron and I might agree on that in that we, we might both agree that it's, it's a bit late in the day to try and revive it and and no one has yet come up with a justiciable standard for identifying the difference between a permissible and impermissible delegation. Um, but And so until someone does, I think that, that Chevron in some form uh, is around for the long haul. The non-delegation doctrine, dear We the People listeners, says that the Congress cannot delegate to the executive or to its agencies the power to make laws. It's been dormant since the New Deal. Uh, Ron, last word to you before closing arguments. Uh, Justice Gorsuch, when he was on the Tenth Circuit, squarely called for the reconsideration of Chevron. He memorably said, there is an elephant in the room with us today. We have studiously attempted to work our way around it and even left it unremarked. But the fact is that Chevron and a case called Brand X permit executive bureaucracies to swallow huge amounts of core judicial and legislative power and concentrate federal power in a way that seems much more than a little difficult to square with the constitution of the framers' design. Maybe the time has come to face the behemoth. Uh, Ron, just assume for the sake of argument that the Supreme Court agreed with Justice Gorsuch and overturned Chevron. How big a deal would that be, and what would the consequences be for the future of the administrative state? Well, uh, so let me start with uh, with Justice Gorsuch's critique of the administrative state, which seems to be essentially what he's doing. I think you can't really get rid of delegation because uh, we have a society of hundreds of millions of people and a Congress uh, of uh, 535 persons who can't come anywhere close to making all the decisions that need to be made for our society to function. So they have to entrust many of these agencies many of these decisions to administrative agencies. There are people who, who just are really uncomfortable with this, but I think it is not realistic to call it into question because we could not function without uh, these entities. Once you have them, then if you delegate certain decisions to them, it, it becomes contradictory for a court to come 
uh, along and say, well, we gave you this decision, but we're going to redecide all the things that you decided. Uh, delegation necessarily implies that the agency is being told to make a certain decision, and uh, a court uh, is in following congressional will, not frustrating it, if they say, well, the agency acted within the delegation, so uh, we will comply with Congress's plan by supporting that interpretation, if it's a reasonable interpretation. Um, now, if, if, if that were thrown out, if that aspect of Chevron were thrown out, that would be truly revolutionary and, as I would say, uh, a, uh, an abandonment of premises on which the uh, administrative state depends. There is another element of Chevron, though, that is a, a little more contingent. This is the part that Jonathan has argued against eloquently uh, in some of his writing, uh, although I don't agree with his position. But uh, as you mentioned, um, there is a presumption that if the statute is ambiguous, then it should be assumed that that is within the delegation. Justice Kavanaugh has called it into question, and frankly, most commentators across the spectrum agree that that presumption is a fiction, that it doesn't reflect what Congress actually intended. It is rather a judicial construct. And so the real debate is, is this a benign fiction or a malign fiction? I think it is benign for reasons much like those I've talked about earlier. Agencies have comparative advantages in terms of expertise, political accountability, the ability to write a, a decision that uh, people can depend on in figuring out where they stand under, the, under their program. Um, but it's a limited degree of, of, uh, of freedom for agencies because courts frequently uh, overturn agencies uh, applying the Chevron Doctrine. So it's not as so extreme. So uh, that part you could modify in, in some ways. Uh, I don't advocate it, but it would be the end of the world because you would just put us back to where we were before 1984 and this presumption came into existence. Uh, so that's a reasonable debate to have. Jonathan and I are on opposite sides of it, but it is a, it is a livable uh, possibility, uh, although I think, I doubt it's really going to happen. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this important and illuminating discussion. Uh, Jonathan, the first one is to you. Why do you think that the Our case was wrongly decided, and why should the court overturn it? Uh, thank you. Uh, I think Our was wrongly decided because uh, both in outline and in practice, uh, it allows agencies to evade a lot of the traditional administrative law norms that we expect agencies to abide by when they are exercising the power that they are delegated by Congress. In particular, it allows agencies to be less accountable because they don't have to engage in the sorts of processes we typically demand when they are going to act with the force of law and bind individuals in the courts. It allows them to evade notice because they don't have to put the public that is regulated or that is dependent upon the agency on notice of what the agency is doing and how it's going to interpret the rules it is going to apply. It allows agencies to evade responsibility for their own errors and mistakes. It allows agencies to control legal outcomes without going through the sorts of processes that in other contexts, Congress under the Administrative Procedure Act has required agencies to go through. And in many cases, it is allowing agencies to evade judicial review because whatever form their interpretation of their own regulation takes, our deference suggests it is potentially uh, eligible for binding deference in the courts. Uh, and that's a lot of leverage that agencies can impose upon uh, private individuals uh, in forms that often can't be challenged in court as final agency actions. And so for all of these reasons, I believe that overturning our isn't really a threat to the administrative state, uh, but would rather be a corrective that would help ensure that agencies actually abide by the administrative law norms that we generally require of government actors. And Ron, last word is to you. Why do you think that our was correctly decided and why should the court uphold it? So just to repeat uh, some of what I <clears throat> said earlier, I think that our reflects a balance between drawing on the qualifications of agencies to uh, give guidance to the courts by virtue of their expertise in the subject area, their knowledge of how programs work. Uh, and at the same time, it doesn't uh, keep courts from uh, reviewing agency actions in a meaningful way. Uh, I think uh, Jonathan overstates uh, somewhat when he keeps referring to 
the doctrine as controlling deference. It's only controlling if these, if these requisites are met. And uh, I, I would say th uh, what we really have is a limited degree of, uh, of uh, giving agencies some slack, but not uh, a blank check. Uh, also, I don't see it as an evasion uh, of safeguards that should exist because um, that, that presupposes that the only legitimate way for agencies to make decisions is through uh, the, uh, the rulemaking process. But this very case illustrates that that uh, is an incomplete picture. Uh, here, the, uh, the uh, Board of Veterans' Appeals and the Court of Veterans' Claims uh, acted according to the exact procedures that Congress has provided. They deliberated. They wrote reasoned opinions. Uh, the, 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 court, the Veterans' Court did not defer to the board, so you had two levels of review. Um, that's as much uh, of a, uh, a process as the law has specified. So there was no evasion of anything, and yet the advantages of, of, of uh, deference still obtain in this case, uh, and I think should be respected. So uh, I don't think the system is broken. It could be perhaps clarified some, but essentially, uh, we have a system that has been around for decades, and I see no reason to abandon it. Thank you so much, Ron Levin and Jonathan Adler, for an illuminating, thoughtful, and nuanced discussion of this crucial question involving the future of the administrative state and the Constitution. Ron, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by David Stotz and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and the Constitutional Content Team. Dear We the People listeners, you must have homework for this wonkiest of all topics. And the homework is obvious. Ron Levin's uh, Administrative Law and Process in a Nutshell. These nutshell books are really good summaries of the law for non-lawyers. So dig in. And if you have the fortitude to read it, email me and I'll congratulate you and say thanks for educating yourself. And Jonathan Adler's uh, book on business and the Roberts Court is a great place uh, to begin and to be introduced to his important work uh, criticizing the administrative state. Uh, in addition to your homework, please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone everywhere who may enjoy a weekly dose of administrative law or of constitutional light and learning. And always remember, dear We the People listeners, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, diligence, fortitude, and passion for lifelong learning of people across the country like you who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support our mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen. Thank you.